Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, Merry Christmas. You know, I say this every year, but I really do love this time of year. In fact, I don't just love this time of year, but I love the transition to this time of year. Because it seems like the monotony of the rest of the year starts to transition to something special toward the end of the year, right? Especially as we get into November and the very beginning of December, everything kind of transforms into Christmas season. Our radio stations begin to play more and more of those Christmas songs that we grew up hearing, right? More and more our neighbors start to put lights and other decorations outside their house and the neighborhoods start to transform into Christmas season and what a beautiful thing. And so I love this time of year and I hope you do too. But I have to be perfectly honest and I I hope we'll all agree with this this morning that Christmas is a lot more than just those things that we think about in terms of Christmas season, right? Christmas, the true Nature, the true meaning of Christmas is far more than sleigh rides and silver bells. It's so much more than snow, especially here in South Florida. It is so much more than Santa Claus and the North Pole and presents. Christmas is about God delivering, God making good on his long-standing promises. His long-standing promises to send to the earth a Savior, a Messiah, His very own Son. And so this is what we recognize. This is, this is what Christmas is truly all about. Without this having taken place, there'd be no reason to find joy in anything, never mind the festivities of Christmas time. And so this is what we're going to focus on together this morning as we read the Christmas account from Luke chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 1. And the text says this, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. I want to pause here for just a moment. Don't worry. We're going to get to the more exciting things. We're going to see Jesus and the major and uh, the shepherds out in the field and the angels and all those kinds of things. This is a rather special and exciting passage. But if we're being completely honest, those first few verses that we just read just aren't as exciting as the other things that we're about to read. And so it begs the question, why did Luke open up this wonderful narrative of Jesus' birth with such mundane talk as uh, emperors and governors and censuses? And so I think that perhaps the best way to answer this question is to remember that Luke chapter 2, the narrative of Jesus' birth, is, is not to be taken in isolation, but it's part of the whole of Luke's writing project. It it falls into the whole of the gospel that he was written. And so I want to remind us perhaps of why Luke is even bothering to write this gospel 
in the first place. And so if you will indulge me a moment, I want to read to you from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And here's what we see. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so as Luke engages in this writing project, in this research and writing project, he is reminding his readers, Theophilus and everybody else, that this is not fairy tale. This is not myth. This is not fiction. This is historical reality. And so what we see is that he is anchoring his writing to historical reality so that we can see the truth of the things that he's writing about. We can know the certainty. So what do we see in the opening verses of chapter 2 as we begin the Christmas story? We don't see, like you would expect in a fairy tale, something along the lines of once upon a time. We don't see what you might, you know, perhaps expect to see in fiction, where there's a lot of imagery, a lot of description to conjure up in the reader's mind some kind of image of this imaginary place. We don't see that. Instead, we see historical facts. We see the, the name of the current emperor. We see the name of the current governor. And we see this, this political tool, the census, being orchestrated in their midst. And again, why is Luke including such things? He includes them so that the historical reality of Jesus' birth can be tethered to historical events happening at the same time in the world, that people would know the certainty of the things that they read about. As Luke continues in chapter 2, verse 4, we see this. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And so here we see the birth of Jesus, and we see, uh, we see a lot of things in this text. But here's the thing I want us to hone in on, that this mention of Joseph going to Bethlehem because he was of the house and line of David. If you remember back a week or two ago as we were looking at Gabriel, the angel's announcement to Mary that she would give birth to the son, we saw some very striking words, some very striking promises being made to Mary about who this child would be and what this child would do. This child would be the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited king in the line of David. If you remember that discussion, uh, God had made a promise to King David about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. 
that King David would have a dynasty that never ended, that his descendants would reign on the throne. In fact, there's this idea of one that would come in his line whose kingdom would never end, who would reign forever. And so this was the promise that God had made to David, and God keeps his promises. But the reality is that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, we've had a couple hundred years now where there was no king in the line of David that reigned on the throne in Israel. In fact, most of the last couple hundred years, there was no king in Israel, but they were dominated by foreign powers. And so here, this promise has, it seems to be unfulfilled or broken, and yet we see this promise by Gabriel that God would restore the line of David, that a king would come. In fact, this Jesus would be that king. And so as Luke is writing this, that they had to go to Bethlehem in order to register their family for the census because they were the house and line of David. They're showing that Jesus is that descendant of David who would restore this Davidic covenant and be that king that's been promised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. As we continue on in our account here in verse 9, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so I, I'm always struck by this particular account that the shepherds were out there in the field, and the shepherds are probably in this time period among the more marginalized people. They were looked down upon because they lived out in the fields with their flocks. They lived in tents uh, like Bedouins do in this day. And yet this is who God sent the angels to make that first proclamation, that first announcement that the Savior has been born. And I also love the fact that the shepherds are terrified because believe me, if an angel of the Lord appeared to me, and certainly if a whole host of the heavenly army appeared before me, I would be terrified as well. But here's the part I want to kind of zero in on here. What the angel says to them in the midst of this announcement. We see this in verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to him, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. So what is this good news that they're talking about? Now, when you and I use the term good news, we're often thinking about the gospel, right? Jesus died on the cross for my sins, rose again from the dead for my justification. And so I believe uh, in the Lord and I receive salvation. Yeah, but these are not terms that these shepherds would have understood quite in that way. Jesus had not yet grown up, had not yet gone to the cross, had not yet made atonement for sin, had certainly not yet risen from the dead. And so all of these would be foreign concepts to them in this moment. So what is the good news that they would have recognized as good news in their context? 
Perhaps to understand the good news that the angel is announcing to them, we first have to understand the situation that Israel was in as all of this was playing out. So let's look at a couple things about the current state of Israel. First, it is recent history that the, for them that the sin of Israel had caught up with it. So, and this is probably emphasized most in the exile to Babylon. In 586 BC, uh, Israel was judged by God, was sent off into exile for, uh, for several, several decades. And even when they came back, things were not as they were before. The temple laid in ruins and had to be rebuilt. Not all the Jews that had been dispersed had the ability to come back to the land of Israel. And so many lived in what we call the diaspora, this dispersion throughout the empire. And even by the time we see when Jesus comes on the scene, even then, most Jews around the diaspora world could only travel to Israel a handful of times each year, perhaps even once a year, and some couldn't even afford to go. And so this is the state. And even those that lived in Israel, it wasn't the Israel as God had intended it for them. It wasn't with a king. It wasn't with autonomy. As God, you know, it's, it's under this foreign oppression, this foreign power at the whim of these other nations around them who exerted their control over the world. And so this idea of sin and judgment and exile, even within the land at this time, reigned in their minds and in their hearts. We also see, as we mentioned earlier, that the Davidic covenant was apparently broken. God had made this promise that David's kingdom would never end, that there would be a descendant of David on the throne. And yet now we have a couple hundred years where there is no descendant of David, no king in the line of David sitting over the throne of Israel. And so this is a reality at this time. Also, God's glory was absent from the temple. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. When Solomon dedicated the very first temple, there's this wonderful description of God's glory descending and filling the temple. And then that temple was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. And when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, there is no account of God once again filling the temple with his glory in the way that he did the first time around. And we see also that there's been a history now in the several hundred years up to this point of foreign oppression. First the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then they won their independence for a short time while still having to contend with uh, conflict and war around them, and then Rome entered in. And now as Jesus comes on the scene, as this announcement is being made to the shepherds, Israel is under Roman oppression. And so promises throughout the Old Testament are so far unfulfilled and seemingly unlikely at this point. So this is the current state in which the angel comes to announce this good news. So what is the good news? The good news is that God's promised solution to all of Israel's problems, in fact, all of the world's problems, has arrived in the birth of this child, the Messiah, Jesus. I want to read to you a passage that is often read uh, at Christmas time, and yet when we really think about it, it has very little to do with Christmas. 
Uh, most of it has to do with a future reality as Jesus reigns upon the earth. And yet I want us to understand this because it is perfectly in line with what Gabriel promised to Mary, what the Jewish expectation would have been, what the angels are announcing as good news here, and what would be a solution to this current state that Israel finds itself in. So hear these words from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the, greatness of, his, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what do we see in these two verses from Isaiah 9? We see a king. We see a kingdom. We see peace unending. But here's the fact of the matter. This is what Gabriel had promised to Mary. This is the good news that's being proclaimed to these shepherds by the angels. This is what Jesus was coming to do. But we don't see that. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He never once reigned on David's throne. He doesn't reign today on the earth. There is no peace yet on the earth. And so some people have taken to uh, make this all figurative. Perhaps he reigns in our hearts or he reigns from heaven. And those who have a relationship with him have peace. But this is not the words of the Old Testament or the New Testament promises of how Jesus would fulfill this. We're talking about a literal fulfillment. And so the only understanding we can come to by searching the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, is that this is exactly what Jesus will accomplish when he comes again. The Bible tells us that he will come and put his enemies under his feet. He will set up his kingdom on the earth. He will reign, and he will reign with peace. And so we look forward to that day when that happens. And so that's the wonderful thing about Christmas is we don't just get to look back to see what God has done, but we get to look forward to what Jesus is going to do. So the question might be, why did Jesus even come that first time if he wasn't going to set up his kingdom and reign on the earth? Because he had to make that future reality possible. And how did he do that? He did that ultimately by dying on the cross to atone for sins and by raising from the dead. You see, when, when the human race fell into sin back in the garden, we had a problem that we caused that we couldn't fix. We ended up breaking the way in which God had intended for us to live upon the earth under his rule under his kingship. And so we inevitably became part of a different kingdom, the kingdom of this world. And Jesus coming to this earth as king the first time was that he might lay down his life for his people, that by doing so, he may make a way for us to be rescued from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And trust me, for 2,000 years, he has been working through his people to build his kingdom, to prepare it for his coming again. Jesus died on the cross 
so that we can be redeemed. So that all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all of our wicked thoughts and actions and words might be forgiven. That we might stand justified before God. That we might once again be brought from death to life. That we might be part of his kingdom and prepared for his coming. We conclude our passage today with Luke 2, 15 through 21, which says this. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. You know, earlier in our service, we sang that song, Mary, Did You Know? Well, if I had to guess, no, Mary didn't know. Mary knew a lot. Mary knew that she had, uh, she knew what God had promised through the angel Gabriel. She knew that she had been miraculously uh, impregnated. She, was, she had conceived by the Holy Spirit just as it was said that she would be. She knew all the events surrounding the birth of her child. She knew what the shepherds told her about what the angels had proclaimed to them. There was a lot of things that Mary knew. But I don't think that Mary fully comprehended everything about Jesus, who he was, and what he would accomplish. Now, I know that there are lots of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that put Mary up on a pedestal. But I have to confess to you today that Mary was also human. And so Mary struggled with this as well. And there's a couple passages that I want to just highlight here for us. And there's a reason for it, as we'll see. First, Luke 2, 34 through 35. So the same chapter we've been in, just a little further. Uh, Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple to have him consecrated to the Lord. And we read this. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. In other words, Jesus has come and he will divide people. People will have to figure out what they are willing to do with Jesus. Do they fall in line behind him? Do they put their faith in him? Do they make him their Lord? Or do they reject him? Do they stand in rebellion against him? Every single person has to come to terms with who Jesus is and what are they going to do with Jesus. And Mary was no different according to Simeon's words here. In fact, we see some of Mary's struggle as Jesus was about his earthly ministry. We see this in Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21, and then we'll jump over to 31 and 34. It says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. 
Literally, the Greek is he is of two minds. And you, you might say, wait a second. Okay, it says family. It doesn't really say all of the family, which members of the family. Maybe Mary wasn't a part of that. But just a few verses later, we see that's not the case. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so Mary herself had to come to terms with who Jesus was. And we see that by the end of his life, she did fall in behind Jesus. And so what a wonderful thing. But even Mary, with all that she had seen, had to come to terms with who Jesus is. It all comes down to what you do with Jesus. Mary had to decide. As you read through the Gospels, you see that people in Jesus' day had to decide what to do with Jesus, and we too have to decide what to do with Jesus. The evidence is there. The eyewitness accounts are there. God's promise to us of forgiveness, of redemption, of hope, of life is there. What are you going to do with Jesus? Christmas is a wonderful time. It is a wonderful time to look at the past. It is a wonderful time to remember what God has done in time and space and human history out of his love, grace, mercy, and compassion for the human race. That even though we had rebelled against him, he loved us so much that he was willing to send his very own son. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate the coming of God's son. But Christmas is not just a time to reflect on the past. And if that's all you do at Christmas is reflect on what God has done at some point in the past, then you have missed so much more that God intends. Because Christmas is not just about the past. It's also about the present and the future. So how is Christmas about the present? Because it's because of what God has done in the past by sending Jesus that we have a decision to make regarding him in the present. A decision that has consequences. And for those who fall in line behind Jesus, those who understand and accept who he was, for those who believe that he died on the cross for their sins and that he rose again from the dead to secure their justification, as Romans 4.25 says, then there's life and there's hope. Hope for now and hope for the future. And so one of the wonderful things about Christmas is it's not just something in the past. It's not even just something to respond to in the present, but it makes possible that future reality that we look forward to. Because in the same way that Jesus came in the past at the appointed time, he will come again in the future at that appointed time. And he will not come to die. He will come to reign as king upon the earth. Just as God promised in the Old Testament, just as those promises were reiterated to Mary and the shepherds and others right here in the New Testament, Jesus will come and he will establish his kingdom. And we need to be ready. Because for those who are not ready, it will not be a good day. They should not look forward to the coming of Jesus if they have chosen not to regard him as Lord. But for those who have made that decision, what to do with Jesus, and he is Lord, 
then our great hope is for when our Lord comes again. Thank you.